1 Corinthians 7. If you, if you have your Bible uh, or you have a Bible app, um, go to 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 for a while. It addresses three topics that we're going to be taking up individually. And so we're going to be moving around in that chapter. But 1 Corinthians 7... Uh, call it up on your phone, open your Bible, know it, love it, memorize it. We'll be there for a little while. All right, I'm going to say something that is universally true of every single person in this room. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you're from. Doesn't matter your relational status. It is true of you, and it is true of every other person in this room. Are you ready for what that is? You were made to know and to delight in love. It's a cry of your heart uh, that you have, that everybody in here has, that we were made for love and to be loved in a way that is just beyond our wildest imaginations, for love to be a source of deep joy and delight, something that fills our imaginations with wonder, everybody in this room. This longing is in you. Here's why. Because God put it there. God made you that way. Now, this may be a new thought for some of you. You may think, I don't really think of myself as a created being. Maybe you don't believe in God, but I'm telling you that everybody on this planet has this longing in them, and it's there because God put it there. St. Augustine, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, said it like this, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Another theologian who we're going to talk about a little bit later today said that every identity crisis Every identity crisis is ultimately rooted in a lack of the knowledge of God. That's the heart of every identity crisis, is a lack of the knowledge of who God is. Today, we're going to start a multi-part series focused on this drive to find fulfillment in love. And the reason we're going to do this isn't just because it's an interesting topic. It's that whenever we talk about how we love as human beings, we are getting into the core of something profound about the makeup of who we are. Our capacity for love makes, is one of those things that makes us distinct in all of creation. It gives us our humanity, our dignity, even our ability to grow and to escape sin, and that by God's design and mercy, that God makes us this way, that we would be wanting to be loved and to be the object of someone's affection. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're now at chapter 7. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church that he planted, and he's been away from them. He's been hearing updates of how they're doing, and the purpose of this letter, 1 Corinthians, as you read it through, takes about an hour to do, is, is he is addressing some of the major issues that this church is wrestling with. And they've been wrestling with many issues that we've talked about already, ranging from jealousy to envy to spiritual immaturity to lawsuits to an unwillingness to acknowledge rampant sexual immorality that's happening in the church and to even acknowledge their own sexual immorality. And we've seen that this community's capacity to love each other is something that is eroding from within. And it's eroding from within by their own attitudes and their own misconceptions about who they are and what they're called to be to each other and their behavior. And so Paul has been taking a very systematic approach so far, taking one issue at a time before moving on to the next, and he isn't finished. Chapter 7, he takes on three issues at the same time, and he takes them on at the same time because they are just so interwoven together in our minds and in our hearts that he has to. 
And those three issues are singleness, marriage, and divorce. And we're going to start here this week and next week talking about singleness. Now, right away, some of you are thinking, it's time for Angry Birds, right? (laughs) Because you're not single. I'm just going to play on my phone for a little while. Please listen. Please listen. Because the reason Paul is writing to them about singleness is not because they're having particular problems about singleness so much as they're having significant problems of understanding the connection between a person's relational status and their identity. And all of us struggle with that. We struggle with finding our identity in our relational status. And single people struggle with a unique set of questions and struggles and burdens that married people don't um, in the same way and that divorced people don't in the same way. But we're going to take on all three of these. And we're going to talk about some myths that surround singleness. Many of you in this room are single. But here's the thing is even if you're not, you don't know when you could be, right? Marriages fall apart. People become widowed instantly. Singleness is an era of life that everybody experiences some of and some people experience much of. And so we're going to talk about it. The first myth that we're going to talk about today is this question that if I'm single, does that mean that I'm missing out on love? Does that mean that my life is somehow missing the opportunity to experience love because I'm single? If you're made for love, which Scripture says that you are, and yet you're single, does this mean that you're missing out on the most fundamental quality of what it means to be a human being? The most beautiful thing that your heart was designed for? Is that just something you have to say, ah, I don't get that. The reality is, if you're single, you have this amazing context in which you can learn and understand what love really is, that you can develop a theology of love, a spiritual understanding of love outside of the context of the demands of a particular committed relationship. Now, I know that some of you just want to punch me in the face for saying that, like, thanks for the platitude. I get to learn about God because I'm single. But this matters. This matters, okay? This is not platitudes. I want to tell you where we're going in this sermon, four questions that we're going to take up. They're, they're, we have a slide for them here, but they're this. Why is... Paul even addressing the issue of singleness. Why is he talking about it? What's going on in this, in this church that he's bringing this up? It's relevant to us. Why does, what does this passage teach us about singleness? Third, what does Paul mean when he calls singleness a good gift? Because that's what he calls it, a good gift. And then fourth, how do we use this gift for our good and for our growth? So that's where we're going to be going. Um, as we dig in, let me pray one more time for us. Father, there are lots of places on this train we're on this morning for, for folks to, to just get off and, and, to, and to stop uh, engaging with this. Lord, would you capture our hearts and hold us? Would you, would you remind us and teach us and convict us that we need to, that we need to understand who we think we are uh, in light of who you say you are and who you say we are? Lord, I thank you that your word is not silent Uh, on issues of the heart that you speak to us, that you give us instruction, that you give us counsel. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand who you are better uh, through this time together this morning. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This first question, 
Why is he talking about singleness? Why does singleness matter? Um, he, he answers this in the first verse of chapter 7, which piggybacks on what we were talking about last week with sexual immorality and morality. He says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he's saying, all right, this is what we're going to talk about. You wrote to me, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul is saying, all right, time out. This is something we have to talk about. See, he's turning his attention to something that they've said to them, and there's a reason for this. Do you know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a statement packaged in a question, right? It's where you already presume the answer, but you ask the question anyway. An example, how in the world am I supposed to be able to keep gas in my car with these fuel prices these days, right? That's a rhetorical question. See, because what you're not saying is, hey, can you guys help me develop a strategy for saving money and setting money aside so I can buy gas? That's not what you're saying. You're saying gas prices are high and I'm frustrated about it. See, it's a rhetorical question. Some rhetorical questions are benign, but a lot of them are questions where the Lord says, hey, no, no, don't let that be a rhetorical question. Let it be a real question. Let it be a real question. Don't rhetorically ask, how in the world am I supposed to connect with the heart of my child who is so rebellious right now? Don't ask that rhetorically as if you can't. Ask it in a way that says, how do I do this? Why am I talking about this? Because in Corinth, it seems that there has been a rhetorical question asked. It's an incredibly um, sexually deviant city that they live in, rampant sexual immorality everywhere. And there are people in the church who have said, how in the world is anybody supposed to have any semblance of healthy sexuality as a Christian? Rhetorically, the answer is, you can't. Hence, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. What he's saying is, there are some of you who are saying, you know what, Christians just shouldn't have sexual relations at all. It's just best to not do that. And that's where Paul's saying, hold on a second. Stop. You have to think about this. You have to unpack this and think about this because what you're saying is because something is tarnished and is broken by sin that God made for us, we just need to not live in this thing that God made for us because there's no hope of engaging this in a healthy way. And Paul's saying, yeah, there is. You have to ask this question for real. And I want you to think about this. Where do you do this in your own life? Where you have some kind of frustration or some kind of impasse or some kind of place in your heart where you're hurt and you're broken. And so you're asking very significant life questions, but you're asking them rhetorically as though there's no hope. You know? Some of you are saying, you know what? What's the point of being in a relationship with somebody when all you ever get is hurt? If that's a rhetorical question, it's coming from the place of pain, right? I've been hurt. I don't want to get hurt again. I'm not going to go through that again. And so I'm not going to engage in relationships with people anymore. And Paul is saying, stop. Don't, no, no. If you want to ask that question, ask that question and deal with it honestly, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because you were made for relationships. You were made to be known and to be loved. This chapter isn't just a list of principles for Christian living, how to be single, how to be a good single, how to be a good married person, how to deal with being a divorced person. That's not the point of this. He's writing about something that is 
interwoven into the fabric of who we are. We who take relationships and because we've been hurt by them, we sabotage them. And we end them prematurely so that we don't have to deal with the pain later. Paul is digging into this. He's digging into the precious questions of what makes us human, what satisfies our hearts, and he's contending for his friends and for us. Hey, go there with me. If you want to ask this question, ask this question, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about your relational status and how to live in a healthy way in your current relational status. Let's ask the questions of, does your relational status define who you are? Is that the most important thing about you? What Paul is contending for us to understand is if you're married, that matters to God. And God means to meet you in your marriage to show you more of who he is and more of who you are to him. And if you're divorced, that matters to God. And God means to meet you in the midst of that pain and the brokenness of that relationship to show you more of who he is and who you are to him. And if you're single, that matters to God. And he means to meet you in your singleness to show you more of who he is and who you are to him. That's why he's talking about singleness because they're ready to throw the relational baby out with the bathwater because it's just too hard and he's saying, nope, it's not a rhetorical question. We're going to answer it. So what does he say? Number two, what does he say about singleness? In verses six and seven and eight, he starts talking to singles and he says this. He says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Okay, so you heard it. He just called singleness a gift, right? He said, I wish everybody was like me, but each person has their own gift, and some people's gifts is different than mine. But then he says, it's good to be single, Okay, so he just called singleness a good gift, right? Now, understand his context. This is not some married dude sitting around in his living room with all the single guys who have come over because they're hungry and don't have food money and they're eating because his wife is cooking. Paul's a single guy. He's saying this. He's saying, I'm single. I'm single and it's a gift. And you know what? I wish more people were single like me. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? That... I haven't known a lot of single people who have said, you know what, I'm single, and I really like being single. I want to be single. I want to be single my entire life. This is the best thing in the world. Now, I will say this, though. There are some. I've met some who say, yeah, I don't think I want to get married. I think I'm going to be single. I think this is, this is, you know, many people regard singleness as a curse, right? Some of you in this room probably are right there where you just think, ah, This is just the curse upon my life. And yet Paul calls it a gift, and he calls it a good gift, and it can't be both, right? It can't be a good gift from God and a curse because no good gift from God is a curse. It's grace, it's mercy, it's love, it's his best for you, it's God being good. All these questions that come up from singleness and from marriage and even from divorce are questions that on a very fundamental level are asking this. Do you believe that God is good in your current relational status? Or do you believe that he becomes good when your relational status changes? See, to call something a curse because it's unpleasant or because it's difficult is really an absurd thing, right? 
because there are countless good things, many of the best things in our life come through difficulty and struggle. And we know this. We know this. We know that education is this way. Education comes through struggle. It comes through work. It comes through frustration. It comes through trying to succeed and sometimes failing, right? Babies are this way. Babies come through difficulty. And yet, they're wonderful. Maturity, haha, <laughs> is this, right? Maturity comes through struggle. I mean, very rarely is the story of somebody who, the way I became a mature person is that I just made all the right decisions along the way and gained wisdom that way. You know, we become mature by blowing it, by screwing up, by having a, just, just missing so much of what's right in front of us and failing. Even our health is this way, that a healthy life comes through struggle and comes through work and comes through difficulty. So good things come through struggle and difficulty. And Paul is more than willing to identify difficult things as gifts. But then that raises the question, doesn't it? Uh, do you have the gift? Do you have the gift of singleness? I don't want the gift. I don't want the gift. Don't give me the gift. What does he mean by this? What does he mean when he calls singleness a gift? It could mean a couple of things, right? It could mean that the gift of singleness is you're able to be single without being bothered by being single, right? That you're able to be single without it being a problem for you. That could be what he means. But I think what he means is, no, the singleness itself is the gift. That if you're single, that relational status is the gift. That God has given you an era, a season of your life, be it months, years, even decades, where this is what he has for you. And it's from him. And it's good. Paul seemed to have this attitude towards singleness. That, and he seemed to be one of those people that was like, and I kind of like it. It kind of suits me, which makes sense when you think about his call, right? He's traveling all over Asia Minor, going from one city to the other, planting churches, meeting people. He's, he's not tied down. He's, he's a guy that's just moving around. So this gets to the million-dollar question, number three, how then is singleness a good gift? How is it a good gift? If you're single, if you're married, if you're divorced, how is your current relational status a good gift? Well, singleness invites you to think and to examine what is true and what is false about love. See, if you're in a marriage or if you're in a relationship where you're engaged and you're getting married, your thoughts about what love is and what makes love good are connected to a particular person who likes to be loved in a particular way. And that's good. I got married real young. Uh, I got married right out of college. And, uh, you know, I married my wife uh, not really knowing who I was, not really knowing what I believed about what it took to fulfill me in love, not really knowing the areas where I was able and strong to fulfill her in loving her well and the areas where I was weak and blind. And so we learned on the job, right? We learned while we were married what it means, and that was presented its own difficulties. For single people, you have this opportunity to develop a spiritual theological understanding of what love is outside of the context of a particular relationship with a particular person. Now, you can be relationally immature 
whether you're married or single or divorced or whatever your relational status is. It looks different for different people, but one way that singles and married people and divorced people sink into this is you start to define your worth, your dignity, your value, your identity by your relational status. You start to say things like, you know, the most important thing that a person can know about me is I'm single. And if you're single, this may be you. You may, and it may not just be, hey, the most important thing that other people can know about me is that I'm single. You may be thinking, you know, the most important thing about me is that I'm single. I think that. This is my plight. This is my everyday existence is, who are you? I'm single. And Paul is saying, don't do that rhetorically. If you want to say that, let's think about what that means because you are not your relational status. You are not. You are not your relational status. It's a part of your story. It's an important part of your story. Paul says it's a good part of your story. It's a beautiful part of your story. But it is not who you are. It is not who you are. It's a part of your story. A part of your story, but not what declares your worth and your value. See, living in singleness can be, for many, like living in a casino. Right? I'm just kidding. You don't know what I'm talking about. It can be like living in a casino. And what I mean by this is any casino that is going to succeed, there are certain things that are true about it. One is that there are no clocks on the wall. You're not going to find clocks on the wall in a casino. Also, there, in, in, in the area where the people are gambling, there are no windows to the outside world. The lights are dim, there's flashing lights, there's noises, there's people dressed up in uniforms doing things, but there's no clocks and there's no windows. Why? Because the casino's objective is to persuade you, to persuade your mind without you knowing it, that time has stood still and that there is no world happening around you. All there is is you in that timeless moment and there are only two kinds of people in the room. There are winners, and there are losers. And singleness can be that way, right? Where you think, there is no world happening around me that I'm aware of. And right now, my life isn't even happening. Time has stood still, and I am hoping that I turn out to be a winner. But in the back of your mind, what are you thinking? You're thinking, the house always wins. The house always wins, you know? Is this you right now? Is this how you approach your identity as a single person? I'm not saying this to um, chastise. I'm saying, look, if you're going to say singleness is the most important thing about you, don't say that rhetorically. Let that be something where Scripture can say, now hold on a second, is that true? Or is that just something that you've resigned yourself to because it's easier for the places where you're lonely and the places where you're hurting? In the casino walls of singleness, we imagine there are just winners and there are losers and we're unaware of the world happening outside, but you're not your relational status. You're not. And when you understand this, then you're free to embrace your relational status for what it is as God's good gift for this season of your life. If you are defining yourself by your relational status, I want to tell you something. You have made it impossible for people to love you well. If, if 
If I say to you that the most important thing about me is that I am a husband and a father of four kids, and that's what we're gonna build our relationship on, on those terms. There's entire sections of my life that I have portioned off and said, don't worry about those, don't worry about those. I'm just interested in being a husband and a father. When God has made me a husband and a father, but he's made me a lot more than that. And that's not just my identity. Relational singleness gives a person freedom to spiritual single-mindedness. And Paul talks about it later in verses 32 through 34. He says this, I want you, he's saying this to everybody, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, next week we're gonna talk about the myth that singleness is something you have to fix um, by exploring the purpose of singleness that God can use, but, but I want us to deal with the verses here in a way that what Paul is saying is he's saying that a, a married person is focused on the Lord, yeah, if they're a believer, but also their spouse, and this is the way it has to be, right? Because you made promises before God that you would do that, that you would, that you would be singularly devoted to this person and to the Lord, which is a complicated thing to think about, right? But he's saying a single person isn't that way, that they can move around, that they can focus their hearts and their energy on, on knowing and loving and resting in God alone. And so if you're single, you're free to enjoy single-heartedly, uh, you're free to single-heartedly invest in the one relationship that you will know for all eternity, and that is your relationship with God. But this means that we need to understand God, that we need to know God, that we need to know Him and we need to know who we are in light of Him. There's a woman named Paige Benton uh, Paige Benton Brown now, um, who uh, some of you I'm sure know who Paige is, um, but if you don't, uh, she lived in Nashville here for a long time. She was part of a university ministry at Vanderbilt. Um, she spent all of her 20s and some of her 30s as a single woman. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant teacher and thinker. Um, one of the, the more sought-after uh, speakers, not just for women's events, but, but for anything. Uh, she just, she had an incredible mind. Uh, and she talked about singleness, and she talked about her experience as a single woman. And I'm going to read from some of the things that she wrote. She wrote this article called Singled Out for Good. Uh, and some of the things that she has to say as we wrap up here are just, are powerful. Um, she, she writes this. She says, uh, John Calvin's secret to sanctification is the interaction between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self interaction between knowing God and knowing who I am. She said singles, like all other sinners, typically dismiss the first element of this formula, and therein lies the root of all identity crisis. She says singles typically ignore the knowledge of God, as does everybody, and this is where identity crises come from. She said it's not that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but that life has no tragedy like our God ignored. And then she says this, and I think, just think about this this week. She says, every problem is a theological problem. Every problem is a theological problem. And the habitual discontent of us singles is no exception. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on the cross in my place? Ah. 
We're talking about the goodness of God in singleness, and it is a rich theological question, right? Is God good to me in my relational status, or is he only good to me when he changes my relational status? Can God be any, God, can God be any less good to me on the average Friday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on the cross in my place? This is at the heart of singleness. The question four, how do we get to, how do we use the gift of singleness for our growth? Singleness gives us this opportunity to focus on the Lord. And it raises all sorts of questions about the problems in our thinking about love, right? How do I feel about being single? If Paige is right, if every identity crisis is rooted in a lack of the knowledge of God, then singleness invites us to direct our questions about love not to another person, but to direct them directly to God himself and to say, Help me understand this. And this is going to uncover warped ideas of singleness that we have. Because see, singleness, if that's something that we look at as saying, I'm missing out on love here, so I need to have an explanation for why this is happening. God, why are you doing this to me? She says, here's some, here's some reasons, some explanations that we give that reflect a warped theology of the goodness of God. Number one, Warped theology of attempting to explain singleness is this. Somebody says, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, then he'll bring someone special into your life. That's warped theology. And the reason it is, is because she says, it's as though God's blessings are, you're saying God's blessings are earned by our contentment. That God blesses me when I'm content enough. When he says, all right, I've seen that you're content enough, now I'm going to give you something special. That's an incredible statement about the goodness of God. Or they say, well, the reason you're single is because you're too picky. You hear that one sometimes, right? You're just too picky. And she says, as though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. You're too picky. God can't possibly answer your desire for a spouse because you're too picky. He can't, just, he can't work within the boundaries of what you're saying. Right? That's not true. That's not true. Or third, you know, oh, gosh, this one's terrible. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you into someone wonderful. <laughs> right? And she says, that's as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. The marriage is a gift that God gives to people who reach a certain milestone. But see, what you're trying to do, right, is you're trying to say, it's a rhetorical question. I don't really want to know the answer. I just want to say, it must be this. It must be that God is not really good or that God does not really love me. And singleness says that, that can't be. That can't be. Not because of your limits, but because of God's infinite love. It can't be that way. So she says, accepting singleness without temporary, or whether temporary or permanent, doesn't hinge on speculation uh, about answers God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on the celebration of the life that he has given. She says, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. She says, I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirms that I should not want, I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. If you're single, this is a season of life to use to really interrogate your heart to what you believe about the goodness of God. What do you believe about why you're single? What do you believe about God's intent toward you in your singleness? Is he doing something to you to punish you or is this a good gift? 
What do you believe about your own desire to be married? Because I'll tell you this, we all have a desire to be married. God made us that way. And it may be a desire that remains unfulfilled in this life. But if our faith is in Christ, we are the bride of Christ. And we were made to long to be united to him for all eternity. Our hearts are made to long for that, for that kind of intimacy. She ends her article like this, and I'll end it this way too, because I think it's awesome. She says, I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. And I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. And I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. Not my will, but his be done. Until then, she concludes, I am claiming as my theme verse, if any man would come after me, let him. Pray with me. (laughs) Father, thank you for taking our rhetorical questions about our worth and your goodness and stopping us and saying, no, that's not a rhetorical question. We're going to answer it. Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to engage us with these thoughts this week, that you would make us um, stronger in our relationships with each other, uh, but also deeper in our knowledge and delight and love of you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.